0: Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening uh, with step number nine on the remembrance of wrongs. And if you remember, this flowed uh, out of his writing on anger. And and if you remember, he stated that uh, the remembrance of wrong is the consummation of anger, sort of the height of anger, that there is this kind of uh, uh malice that we hold on to at times, or can be become a kind of, of a malicious spirit and a very dark spirit within us if we hold on to the, the memory uh, of past wounds. And uh, it's no small thing, I think, to in, enter into this struggle. Uh, and it requires a kind of vulnerability before God and openness to the action of His grace in our life when we're talking about the healing of memory. And uh, uh, especially when it's tied to you know, very real wounds uh, and insults and uh, afflictions that we've borne in our lives. And uh, and so it was a challenging reading the last time and we'll get to hear his final thoughts on it here this evening before we move into uh, slander and calumny. And then we'll be going through a series of steps on sins of speech that are tied to, to our speech. So again, it's step number nine, page 126, paragraph 13. An anchorite who remembers wrongs is an adder hidden in a hole, which carries about within itself deadly poison. Uh, if you'll see in the footnotes, hezekiah so one who's Uh, living the Arametic life on his own and uh, living a life of silence. But if there is this remembrance of wrong and this deep seated anger that exists there uh, in the solitude, it will only fester and grow. And so while there might be the appearance of silence and stillness and meekness, what lies within uh, is actually quite fierce and, uh, and he describes it as an adder hidden in a hole and so typically the, the fathers see the common life as being a resource in the healing uh, of this of these kinds of wounds that we have the the resources within the common life those to support us in it and uh Uh, who engage us when they perhaps see us overcome by it so that we uh, don't have it simply fester within us and grow over the course of time. Living the common lives sort of compels us to deal with feelings of anger. And that includes marriage and uh, (laughs) uh, pretty much on a daily basis, probably. Uh, And so uh, so it's the, the common life that allows us to see it with a greater clarity. Uh, I think when we live the life of solitude, we can get caught up in sort of the delusion that we're free from it. And, uh, and we can even, individuals can gravitate to uh, a solitary life precisely because they have been overcome by it or overcome by their wounds. And so with it's more of a withdrawal uh, from community than it is a drawing uh, close to God and uh, and through Him with each other. Number fourteen, the remembrance of Jesus' sufferings cures remembrance of wrongs, which is mightily shamed by His forbearance. And you know, I think this is why we see within the writings of the saints and in their lives this constant meditation upon the passion of the Lord, that it's not a kind of morbid fascination, but it is uh, our meditation upon uh, his love, the selflessness of it, his humility, his willingness to to bear the burdens uh, that he did on our behalf, and to bear the insults and the affliction of others, uh, is something that uproots anger from within our hearts that this is the healing balm for us to gaze upon he who is love and he who is mercy and forgiveness and uh, one is drawn back I think uh, to the image from the old testament if you remember where the people had been disobedient and were afflicted by the serpents and they were being stung by the serpents and were dying and God has Moses Uh, fix a serpent upon a a rod and have them gaze upon it they have to look at it in order to be healed and so gazing upon as it were uh, their the consequence of their disobedience uh, has an effect upon them it's humbling and it compels them to acknowledge the, the weight of their sin and the weight of their disobedience. And this is what brings healing to them. And we find Christ himself using the image within the Old Testament. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And for us, it's even more of a powerful source of healing that in gazing upon Christ crucified, we we see there certainly the weight of our sin and the darkness of it, poverty of it, the consequence of it. Uh, but uh, we also see the depth of God's mercy and his love, what he was willing to take upon himself uh, on our behalf. And this is the, offers the truest and the deepest healing for us. It uh, leads us to that repentance, that sorrow of heart that draws us back to him uh, in order that we might come to experience once again the joy uh, of union. So it leads us to repentance and the healing that it brings. Number 15, worms grow in a rotten tree, and malice finds a place in falsely meek and silent people. He who has cast it out has found forgiveness, but he who clings to it is deprived of mercies. Uh, So a powerful image, malice finds a place in the falsely meek and silent people. It's like a rotten tree that uh, there can be, as I mentioned earlier, a kind of uh, silence and meekness, an external gentleness, uh, but internally, it's uh, really uh, uh, something else that is being made manifest. And at one point here, he describes it uh, towards the end of the section as dark spite, uh, where it becomes something that is malicious. Uh, And so one cannot tell simply by the exterior disposition of individuals what is going on within. A person might seem very meek and gentle, but there can be a kind of passive aggressiveness underneath that. And, uh, and it can be something that's rooted in a deep kind of anger and remembrance of wrongs that then does affect their interactions with others. Uh, it might not be overt, uh, but their interactions can be imbued with this kind uh, of, of malice or uh, deep-seated anger. And uh, it can become an impediment uh, to their freely, not only being able to love others and give themselves in love, but in love, but it prevents them from experiencing uh, the the mercies of God in all of their fullness, uh, all of the blessings that God would desire to offer a person. That when we hold on to uh, these wrongs in our minds and our memories and our imagination, it prevents our those from being filled with the thoughts of God. And so if our thoughts are constantly being driven and our imagination and memory is filled with these uh, images of past wounds, it prevents us from seeing the the love of God freely. And I think this is why in the previous uh, saying that the call is to keep our focus upon Christ crucified in order to uproot it that it's really only the mercy of God that becomes, is strong enough to be uh, the healing balm that is needed. That this isn't something by our own will uh, that we can free ourselves from simply by thinking our way through it or by driving the thoughts out. It's really by the grace grace of God alone. Uh, Anthony writes, then this would apply also to wrongs we have done too that filter out his healing. Yes, you know, I think, uh, you know, are seeking reconciliation with others. uh, And we even hear it within the scriptures, you know, if you come to the altar and there remember, you know, that there's a grievance between you you and uh, a brother there, go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift that uh, the the wounds either that we bear or that we afflict others with uh, or have afflicted others with over the course of time uh, can become an impediment to our freely entering in to that that mystery and knowing the depths of its mercies. And so in our prayer life, to be asking for the healing of those that we have wounded and in so far as it is possible to seek reconciliation uh with with those uh, that you know we have had a, a break in that relationship now that might not be a possibility because of any number of circumstances and maybe there's something that is truly toxic and would be continued to continue to be wounding there but uh nonetheless i think we are to call uh, call on god for a kind of deep healing there of, of the other and uh, to love one's enemies, and uh, but also to seek pardon from those that we have wounded. You know, both are very humbling aspects of our faith. Okay. Some, for the sake of forgiveness, give themselves up to labors and struggles. But a man who is forgetful of wrongs excels them. If you forgive quickly, then you will be generously forgiven. And so, you know, almost as a kind of defense mechanism, we can gravitate towards ascetic practices. And so a person can give themselves up to, as he says here, labors and struggles, uh, and yet the capacity to forgive another brings quicker healing. And so our focus is better centered there And it's not as though our ascetic practices uh, are of no avail, Uh, but in terms of their capacity to uproot uh, that lack of forgiveness, uh, it certainly can take a longer period of time, or it can be uh, ways that we rationalize not dealing with it. We become focused upon asceticism. And so our asceticism becomes a defense mechanism rather than a source of acting upon our faith and taking hold of the grace that God is offering to us. And again, you know, that's always the danger, I think, in reading uh, the the fathers is that we can lose sight of the relationship that it is to to foster between ourselves and Christ, but also with each other, to deepen the sense of the radical solidarity that we have with each other in our sin, uh, but also uh, in and through the grace of God. And so, you know, our relationship with each other has been forever altered. And uh, we're coming up on uh, Forgiveness Sunday within the church, where, you know, there is this explicit asking of forgiveness of one's neighbor uh, that takes place even within the context of the liturgical act. And there's something quite beautiful about that uh, because it makes it concrete and tangible for us, uh, that this is what we are called to, and this is what the grace that is offered to us in the Holy Eucharist is meant uh, to bring about, you know, not only union with God, but union with each other, and uh, and so we are given that means, but it, it, there's a kind of vulnerability that goes along with that. Sue and Mark write, I have found that if I'm struggling in this area, that if I ask God to forgive them for me, it is easier also to bring me to that place of forgiveness that he desires. Yes, you know, to begin with God and to seek the grace that is needed. Um, You know, this, I, I don't want us to read through this in such a way where we ignore the challenge of it. You know, all things are possible through the grace of God. And uh, I would say that this kind of letting go of the remembrance of wrongs is only possible by the grace of God. Uh, but we, we don't want to minimize uh, the wounds that many bear within this world, or at times that people are are victims of others' malice. And we don't want to use, I think, the teachings of the fathers to ignore that reality. I think what God can offer us is this healing that takes place of, again, memory and imagination. Not that we would forget the wounds that others have inflicted upon us, but that we can bear them as he has borne them or knowing that he has borne them. That we're not in isolation in the pain that we bear. And uh, you know, in, in so many ways, I think this is really the, the starting place for us. It is with, with Christ and our understanding that He has already borne it, and that we never suffer in isolation. And all the things that we've experienced throughout the course of our life and the wounds that we've borne, uh are already his, have already been taken upon, he's already taken upon himself. And so our path to healing lies in and through our our allowing ourselves to enter into that relationship more and more deeply. Because I think if we thrust ourselves into this thinking, well, I have to go up to the person who's victimized me, then I I think we're setting ourselves up for a kind of desolation or hopelessness. that seems barbaric to us in, in some ways, and I don't think that's what what we are called to. I think we are called to allow ourselves to be drawn into this divine love that has the capacity uh, to bring healing to those who've been wounded, but also to those who who wound others. And you know, I, our tendency at times. To be legalistic in our thinking, we lose the the relational uh, aspects of our understanding of living out the faith life, and in particular, uh, living out that life in the context of our relationship with Christ, that we don't live the faith life out in isolation. And if we're struggling to live the gospel under our own strength, our, our knees are going to buckle. And in the same way that Peter's knees buckled, you know, it's like I will never betray you. I will die for you. And I think we were talking about this in one of the groups, you know, the moment that he's faced with somebody recognizing him as a disciple. Uh he denies ever knowing Christ. And uh, you know, there on some level Peter had to be humbled in order then to to know the strength and the mercy of God and then to be able to rise and strengthen his brothers uh, who also fled. And uh, and so that's true, you know, for those who are spiritual guides to others. uh, You know, you can't fake that uh, because otherwise the council becomes stilted and Uh, you end up doing others greater harm. Uh, uh, If you do anything other than, than draw them to Christ, or if you try to turn the faith or aspects of the ascetical life into magic, that somehow, you know, it is suddenly going to remove the painful realities of our life. That's to lay upon a person's shoulders expectations that I think at times are inhumane and end up causing greater wounds. Anthony writes, this is what I have a hard time understanding, sin, mortal and venial, which is emphasized so much in the admonishment of frequent in, in frequent confessions, so much emphasis on me, me, me. Yeah, it, ca- it can devolve into that, where one loses sight of, again, of Christ. And one approaches the sacrament uh, as something that we are reaching out and taking hold of rather than uh, having something bestowed upon us and uh, when the language becomes very legalistic then I think we lose sight of our approach to the sacrament as approaching Christ himself and in the embrace of the sacrament itself knowing the healing and the strength that we need to struggle with both mortal and venial sin and i find the distinction while you know helpful and this has come up you know many times throughout the course of the past past well it's helpful i think it also uh, is is something that can hobble us in the spiritual life uh because it gets us into that pattern of thinking you know where have i crossed that line uh rather than responding to the subtle call of the grace of God in our life to come to him to know healing that is similar to the, the subtle call to prayer. And, uh, and so if we're coming simply there to relieve ourselves on an emotional level or even on some aspect on a spiritual level uh, in a cathartic kind of fashion, then it can become almost an abuse of the sacrament. In the sense of, are approaching it not not uh, in an unworthy way, because often you know people will come having prepared and thought it through, but uh, abuse of it in the sense that we are are not seeing Christ present, and you know I think priest as well, in in the sacrament, can abuse it too when it it becomes uh an obligation, a kind of work rather than something that one prepares for oneself for spiritually and acknowledges that uh, that the grace that is active in the sacrament is touching one's own mind and heart there for you to serve the other uh, in order to draw them into this greater healing that is being offered. But in the process you are also being healed and strengthened yourself. And so when we, we turn it into a kind of toll booth, you know, almost, uh, uh, then it becomes something that, uh, m- might not be as healing. People might not experience the mercies of God in the way intended. In a similar way, if it's too infrequent, I think we can lose sight of, uh, uh, the, the the enormous gift that God has given to us in the sacrament that these are the privileged ways that we come to experience his love and his mercy in a concrete and tangible way that our faith life isn't lived out just in our mind notionally that the desire there is that we would be able to experience his love his tenderness, uh, his forgiveness. In this concrete way, so that we're not left wondering whether or not we, you know, are forgiven, but that we, we would hear the words, I absolve you, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. How often is good? I think it varies. <laughs> You're so legalistic. <laughs> uh, I think frequent is good you know, that there is this intimate, but again, that it's driven out of this intimacy that we seek to draw close to Christ, knowing that this is the means through which he's given us the, uh, you know, a place where we know not only healing from sin, but strength for the spiritual battle itself. There are some uh, sins that might be venial, but we find ourselves moving into a kind of pattern of thought or behavior or negligence or laziness and we turn to the sacrament uh, to receive the grace and the strength that we need. We understand that receiving the Holy Eucharist is the ordinary means through which this is received, you know, both in terms of the forgiveness uh, that is needed, but also the strength uh, to live the spiritual life. Uh, but, you know, the church would have us, you uh, Take advantage of our access to the treasure house of grace that is offered to us through through the church. And uh, we often are blind to that treasure house, and the church in speaking about it is can at times be lukewarm. Where I think we should be really, you know, a, there should be a constant call there to take advantage. And part of that is making it accessible. A church that is alive is not locked up. It's open constantly. And, you know, and if the priests are too busy to do that, then they're busy doing things. We're busy doing things that maybe we shouldn't be doing. Or we're not involving the faithful enough in order to make that a possibility. And, uh, you know, I know the realities that we face today. And believe me, I live in Duquesne, and Lori can, uh, you know, confirm here that this would be a hard place to keep the church open, you know, un- unattended. But, you know, I think we communicate something uh when we keep it locked up like a fortress. You know, we're, we're making are uh, the, the capacity for people to come into the presence of Christ and the way that he's given himself to us in these extraordinary ways. we make him inaccessible. I know of one church where the priest I've been told locks the bathrooms outside of, the, of when the the mass is being offered. And I, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, you know if you want people to come and linger long with the Lord, you don't lock the bathrooms, <laughs> you know, it's like you're telling people, you know, don't stay here. And we don't want you making our bathrooms dirty. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think to be honest with you, I don't want to linger any longer in, in this because I want to get back to climacus, But I think we do a lot to, to not encourage people uh, to come to church. And for it not to be a place of comfort and consolation, or where that it would come to their mind first thing when they're going through a trial or a struggle to go there to find comfort, either in guidance by a priest that is present and available in the confessional, or to sit quietly before the Lord in the blessed sacrament. And it's not that one cannot do this at home, but there's something, there's, again, there's a privileged kind of prayer to come before the Lord as he's present to us in this most beautiful way within the Blessed Sacrament. And we should, if we believe that, we should make it as accessible as possible. Uh, Number, are we on 16, I believe? or uh, I think we're on, no, we're on 17. Uh, the forgetting of wrongs is a sign of true repentance. But he who dwells on them and thinks that he is repenting is like a man who thinks he is running while he is really asleep. So, you know, the evidence of our forgetting of wrongs is that, uh, is or, or the, it, what it bears witness to is true repentance of this turning toward God and turning towards him, not in an episodic way, but always. And I'm, I'm doing a little talk for the students here in another week or two on, on exactly this as repentance being life's continuous effort, that there's this constant movement of the self toward God. And this is what's taking place in our praying of the Jesus prayer uh, over and over again, this movement, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. It's it's expressing exactly that, our, our turning toward the one who's the source of life, of love, of healing for us. And so our doing that constantly is what makes, the, uh, gives us this capacity uh, to offer this kind of forgiveness and even to forget one's wrong wrongs or the wrongs been that have been done to one and uh what he says here at the end you know to believe that there uh is a, something to believe otherwise is like a person who's dreaming that they're running you know it's like a dog you know when you see its le- legs sort of moving while it's, it's it's dreaming that's what we become like you know that we think we're running but we're you know or we're really We're running. If we're running at all, it's with a heavy tread, and uh, under the weight and the burden that we carry. When when Christ would lift it from us. And again, you know, I think if we fall into uh, what Anthony had brought up, this you know kind of legalism, then you know even repentance itself can be. We can reduce it. Uh, again to a specific act that we expect something in return, rather than a turning toward love, turning towards he who is mercy. And that will never bear the kind of fruit I think that John is talking about here. And what is being asked from us is simply that we would open our eyes to who it is that's before us at every moment and that we reach out to the one who's reaching out to us and take hold of the hand that is stretched out to us in mercy. Number 18, I've seen spiteful people recommend forgetfulness of wrongs to others. Yes, and being put to shame by their own words, they rid themselves of the passion it's a pretty hard, difficult thing to speak about or preach about. To get up in a pulpit and tell people, you know, forgive your enemies uh, when you know your heart is filled with rage towards others. Uh, either you have to silence your conscience, and then there's some there's a deep spiritual illness there, or those words are going to pierce your own your own heart and draw you to the place where you need to be. And, you know, preaching should never become a a kind of perfunctory task for for the priest. He should be always preaching first to himself. I think that should be evident to everybody within the congregation as well, because then that allows others to hear it in a certain way. That is, it's not being, there's not a condescending uh, approach there to those in the congregation, but this sense of, again, that radical solidarity that this word that I'm proclaiming and preaching is being spoken to me. You know, when we hear the word proclaimed, it's not uh, that we're simply listening to something that was spoken 2000 years ago. We're hearing a word that's being spoken to us now in the moment and that is active and alive and And so, you know, for a priest to be preaching that uh, and as one who's hearing it being directed towards himself, first and foremost, then how it's heard will have the capacity then to reach into the depths of others' religiosity. Otherwise, it's not going to penetrate. It's going to seem stilted. and. And often is, you know, I've come across these conversations online where people talk about what they heard proclaimed at the liturgy, and they said, that's it for me, I I can't, I'm not, I can't go back. And precisely because the words betrayed something that was contrary to the spirit of the gospel. And, you know, obviously I have to take certain things with a grain of salt, but, you know, I've heard it. I've heard it often enough. And I also have heard homilies that were well-prepared by myself, but were stilted because I was focused upon myself and the words themselves. Uh, You know, preaching can be something that is filled with Uh, self-esteem and you know it's in this incredible way because you're putting yourself out there to be vulnerable and if you're not being vulnerable with God in prayer it's going to be very hard for you to be vulnerable before your congregation and so you're going to become focused upon uh, you know if you want it to be good then you want it to be eloquent or well thought out or entertaining and engaging intellectually but it may not penetrate because and it may be stilted Uh, even if it's only just for the priest because it's over-prepared with the focus on the self, not with this openness toward God and what he's, the word that he is speaking to the depths of the heart of the priest and wishes to be communicated to to the congregation on that day. Again, we approach homiletics and seminary all wrong. (laughs) Redo. We need a redo. Okay. Number uh, 19. Let no one regard dark spite as a harmless passion for it often manages to reach out even to spiritual men. So dark spite, you know, I've had like a dozen people ask me, what does dark spite mean? And (laughs) I'm not altogether sure, but, you know, from my readings of the fathers, you know, I think it's when that anger and that remembrance of wrong becomes malicious, where there's an ill will that then begins to develop behind it. And so it's not simply, you know, venting to one's, you know, spiritual director or confessor, but it's a, a kind of maliciousness that is allowed to fester where one uh, is so enraged at the other that we desire that uh, you know, their life, you know, would fall apart or they would be exposed for what they are in the eyes of others. And you know, I understand that. I mean, I think anyone who's been deeply wounded uh, and knows the pain of it, and especially when one is the victim of a kind of aggression, or the the victim of you know others you know uh diminishing you as a person it's hard not to want to protect oneself on that level and hard certainly it would be inhuman not to have those feelings it's again i think it's what we do with those feelings and the only thing that we might be able to do with them is to give them to christ and allow him to do with than what he's able to do by the action of his grace within our hearts. And it may simply to be to console us and that we might be nourished and nurtured upon what he offers rather than nurturing ourselves upon what often we, we feel is going to be helpful to us, our ruminating and uh, because there is something that is therapeutic about it and cathartic about it to get it out and even uh ever uh Climacus acknowledges that at one point in his section on anger he says sometimes when somebody blows up they they sort of they get it out of their system and then they become free of it and uh but you know, when, when it festers within us, then, and we hold on to it and ruminate it, we can actually be nursing ourselves on it. And slowly it can become toxic to us and poison the spiritual life. And again, you know, I think in, in terms of the confessional and spiritual counsel that is offered, there has to be a kind of understanding and delicacy here, you know, uh, in the sense of not wounding all those who are already have been wounded but drawing them first and foremost to Christ who alone really knows the the depth and the reality of what they've suffered and so alone can bring healing to them and then finally he writes the ninth step let him who has reached it henceforth boldly ask the Savior Jesus for release from his sins. So, you know, one who has reached this level where they can let go of the remembrance of wrongs then can boldly ask for the mercy of God for whatever it is that we, we suffer with. And no matter how deep the sin might be, that our approach to God would be free because precisely because we've let go of our, our anger and have offered that forgiveness to others. So whatever burden that we might bear, uh, we can be freed from. I think that's why those in Jesus' time, I think were able to receive that grace. You know, the, the, those who had no illusions about themselves and about their own lives you know the matthew the tax collector the woman caught in adultery you know, it's they were able to receive something precious there because there was no defensiveness on their part in fact they were defenseless you know the one woman caught in adultery was going to be stoned to death and uh and so you know of all the, the people she becomes you know radically open, you know, because of the circumstances there to receive what Christ could offer. And indeed, if she is the same woman who comes and anoints, you know, his feet uh, at the supper uh, and smashes the jar of perfume, one can understand that, you know, the, the lavishness of it, of smashing the, the, the jar of ointment. Uh, as, as a response to the lavish love and forgiveness that she had received at his hands. It's such a powerful image. We do well, I think, to go back to that over and over again. In fact, you know, it's around that story that Christ himself says wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done here will be remembered. He doesn't say that about anybody else. It's an extraordinary thing. This action is most reflective of what is about to happen. Her smashing of that jar of nard and pouring Mm -hmm. it all out to the point that it it fills the room with aroma. You know, what is going to capture the outpouring of love on the cross where he allows himself to be broken and poured out greater than that. So that's a, you know, for in terms of Lexio Divina, our meditation on Scripture, that's always a wonderful passage, and certainly for Lent, that would be a beautiful passage for us to take for the full, the whole of Lent to meditate upon. Okay, any comments or questions about this step as a whole? Any concerns or thoughts or things you would want to explore? Okay, step number 10 on slander or calumny. And so we see a little shift here uh, to his focus on sins of speech and, uh, and containing uh, the things that we say. And so he begins by saying, no sensible person I think will dispute the slander is born of hatred and remembrance of wrongs. Therefore, it comes next in order after its forebears. Uh, Rebecca writes, before we move on here, I'm still puzzled as to the difference between spite and dark spite. Well, I think dark spite, <laughs> I think it's you know a descriptor, but it's talking about a, a spite that is deep, that re- really does It has come to the point that it's taken such deep root that it it has become malicious. It desires harm to the other. And and let me think about a different way of putting it. When we think of envy in particular, I posted a little reflection today on the experience of uh, Cain and Abel. And, you know, it's where you know, where we covet something that somebody has, you know, jealousy. I want what that person has. Envy is if I cannot have it, then nobody can have it. And so, you know, the the acceptance that Abel receives from God inflames within Cain this kind of envy that wants to take away in the most radical way. And one would say that's a pretty dark spite. You know, he smashes in the head of his brother and kills him uh, because of it and uh, experiences what God has done as a kind of personal, you know, being wronged personally and also being wronged by his brother. And so it's very similar, I think, to what is being described here, a dark spite that would lead us to act act in a way that uh, is destructive, where it moves from thought to feeling to something that could be you know, far more crippling for ourselves and others. Ambrose writes, maybe something like, if you harbor it secretly in the darkness of your inner self, you don't allow it to be brought into the light, examined for what it is and see that it is wrong and needs to be eliminated. And Carol Wright's dark definition includes angry, threatening, arising from evil, sinister. right. You know, I, I, I think when you know, anger is left in that darkness. And when it does fester, uh, it becomes something that's ever so destructive. Sinister is a pretty powerful image there too. Okay, so back to step 10. Number two, slander is an offspring of hatred, a subtle yet coarse disease, a a leech lurking unfelt, wasting and draining the blood of love. It is simulation of love, the patron of a heavy and unclean heart, the ruin of chastity. Goodness, there's there's so much there uh, to think about. Uh, and as always, the imagery that John uses is so powerful, and so we we see at least what, why he ties it to what we've been speaking about here, anger and the remembrance of wrong, that this would be an offspring of it, then our uh, capacity to, to speak about it to diminish the other, uh, a coarse disease, a leech lurking unfelt, and so we might not even see it within ourselves or feel it and yet have it become a kind of natural and habitual response to when we see things in others that we we do not like and so if our lens in viewing others has been shaped by anger then we are going to be most attentive to the faults that exist within them not the virtues and the good things and so it becomes this uh, leech that then drains the blood of love and so if anger becomes that lens we see only those faults and then it, eventually it drains our capacity to love others and give ourselves in love because they everybody becomes unlovable in our eyes eventually it is a it is simulation of love i thought it was a Interesting descriptor, you know, because so often our speaking the truth, we tell ourselves, is an act of love. You know, to tell somebody the truth. I'm really loving you by telling you, you know, what a moron you are or how wrong you are. And uh and we, you know, when in reality it has nothing to do with, with love whatsoever that there is this morbid delight in being able to diminish a person uh, in our own eyes and in the eyes of others, even if what we say is true. And so this is on calumny as well as slander. Uh, The distinctions aren't real clear here. Slander usually has to do with what is written. Calumny typically is false. Uh, where we are tearing down a person's character, detraction is often. If we're being, if we want to be specific and more exact, uh, detraction is when it's something true, and we speak it out loud to diminish, detract from the character of the other. And you know, I don't think John is uh, worried so much about the the precision about that, but the impact of it. Uh, And so it has this false look of love to it. And we hear this mild every day and perhaps have heard ourselves say the words, the patron of a heavy and unclean heart. So it becomes a burden to us that when we, when we do this and we find ourselves doing it, we often experience a heaviness of heart because uh, it. The sin itself of pulling another person down uh, weighs heavy upon us because, conscious or unconsciously, we 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 know that it's not right, and we become diminished from it. And then finally, the ruin of chastity. This might be uh, the most surprising uh, aspect of what he says here, but uh you know slander and calumny would be uh, a distortion of charity a loss of love a, a disorder of love and as he describes here a simulation of love and so this uh distortion in love where we are using this uh the truth as a weapon to tear somebody down uh to hurt them then when we do this we lose this our our capacity to love becomes disordered and uh, we then fall into uh, unchastity that uh, we objectify uh, are objectifying the other and treating them in a certain way and calumnizing them Uh, but in that we fall into pride And pride rideth before the fall. The moment that we are tearing somebody down because of their weakness, their sin, that sin is soon to follow in our own life. And the way that God often humbles us is to allow us to experience that humility on a bodily level, on, you know, this level that often carries a kind of shame to it as well for us, that we are able to control our own appetites and desires. And so uh, when we find ourselves struggling, maybe with unchastity too, you know, it's a good thing to ask ourselves, you know, where, where has our heart been? Have we been prideful? How is it we've looked at, at others? How, how have we talked to them or looked upon them even, you know, in terms of uh, our uh, estimation of them? So there's a lot there in paragraph two to reflect upon, and certainly more than what I've said, and it would be a good one to highlight and go back over. uh, These early paragraphs in the steps of John are always wonderful, where he defines the the vice or the virtue and the offspring or what they're the offspring of. And so they're always good to go back over many times because they, they really do shine a great light upon our struggles. Number three, some young women do not do wrong without shame. And there are others who secretly and with apparent great modesty behave still worse than the former. And it is the same with the passions of dishonor. There are many insincere maidens such as hypocrisy, vice, melancholy, the remembrance of injuries, disparagement of others in one's heart. They appear to propose one thing, but they have something else in view. And so, you know, just as, you know, there can be hypocrisy in one who plays this role of being modest, uh, you know, in, in dress or veiling oneself or whatever it might be, or demeanor, where within the heart there can be something far different going on. You know, the externals can mean very little and certainly dressing in black and wearing a funny hat does not make one holy uh, or prayerful. And, uh, and so John is saying, you know, there are many insincere maidens, hypocrisy, vice, melancholy. And so that, you know, that they appear as something else, much in the way that we described, you know, the way we convince ourselves that we're loving and telling the the person the truth and putting them right or giving them a good scrubbing, as John said. And similarly, there are all these different ways uh, where it's hidden, you know, melancholy, you know, uh, a a melancholic spirit can really be something that uh, not only pulls us down, but pulls others down as well. When we lose sight of what it is that we have in Christ, and where our own poverty looms so large that we can no longer see uh, what our Lord has done for us, but also we lose sight of his promises, then a melancholic spirit can take over. And uh, Philip Neary, uh, you know, when there were those who were in his community or wanted to be in his community, but had this melancholic spirit. In, a spirit said, you know, melancholy, melancholy, I will not have you within my house, that he knew that this spirit could have an effect upon the whole community in the sense of darkening it and making the life lived together with each other, uh, weighted down and make the pursuit of virtue seem burdensome. Uh, And so he always saw, you know, those who are more cheerful or joyful as being uh, more easily guided in the spiritual life. Even those who by natural temperament are more joyful can be uh, guided in the spiritual life and corrected. Uh, But when we have a melancholic spirit or we have that tendency towards despondency, that at times we can pull ourselves down. Uh, as well as, John says, others too, uh, or as certainly as Philip Neary saw. And uh, and so our practice of the asceticism of joy uh, becomes something that's very important, that there are a lot of things that can weigh heavy upon us from day to day, our work, you know, or relationships that we have to engage in, and in our mind, you know, they can become, we can get to the point that they're endurable for us, but <laughs> it's we aren't necessarily joyful in engaging in our own life, in what God and His providence has placed before us. And so then our pursuit of or our embrace of what he's offering us in that moment becomes very difficult that God can be holding out to us a really significant grace. And yet the darkness that in some sense that we at times allow to come over. So I'm not talking about, you know, uh, like a clinical depression here. So I don't want to be misunderstood here, but we can allow a kind of dark spirit to overcome our hearts and our emotions to pull us in a certain direction where we are unable than to take hold of what God is offering us and what would lift us up. And it, makes, it can make our whole spiritual life seem, and life as a whole seem burdensome to us. And so you don't hear much about the asceticism of joy, uh, but it would probably be good if we talked about that more frequently. Uh, we have a tendency to focus upon the negative, including in the spiritual life. You know, uh, it's important for us to talk about sin and the struggle with sin and overcoming the the passions and the vices, but we don't want to, in the process, lose sight of what has been given to us in Christ and the joy that belongs to us as sons and daughters of God. Uh, Because if we do, then again, you know, our, our minds and our hearts run with a heavy tread. Any thoughts about that paragraph? Everybody's staring at me with this kind of blank look. You're kidding me. I'm not allowed to be melancholic. <laughs> it hurts so good. <laughs> you know, I, I don't wanna give that up. So it is a hard thing. You know, sometimes when we get in, a, uh, in an ugly mood We want to stay there you know because ugly moods at times can be satisfying in their own way and we feel freer i think is what john is saying than to slander others you know if you're joyful then typically that's not going to happen anthony wrote i think you're right more more saint francis is needed less uh very few will be saved Right, you know, I think there can be this uh, kind of dark spirit that uh, that envelops the, the church and the faithful times, and I think it can drive people away. You now, where's the fruit? Where's the the, the joy uh, of the spirit and of living in Christ uh, that we hear the saints speak of so frequently? And if that is absent in this profound way, then no matter what we do or say is not going to speak to the hearts of others i have that problem i think when i read when i when i read and i'm thinking about preaching my my eyes gravitate to the most challenging verse in the gospel and i don't know that that's must be my presbyterian upbringing <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it started right at the beginning of my preaching and I remember uh you've probably seen him on his his name is Deacon Anthony Dragani and I knew him as a student and uh he's uh I think a Ukrainian deacon and really bright fellow and uh uh but we came out of mass one day and he said you know father i, I you know I lo- really lo- loved your homily and he said i heard a bunch of students talking about it as they were leaving the chapel and just out of curiosity so what did they say and he said they hated it <laughs> and because there was such a, a fierceness in those early days and you know that had more to do i think with my own heart at that point. and." Uh, you know my my own struggle, I think, to engage in the spiritual life, and uh, my own lack of self awareness at that point. Uh, but it was interesting. There was something humbling about hearing that, you know, <laughs> being told that all the students, you know, you're a campus ministry, and that all, campus minister and all the students hated your homily. Uh, it's, it was sort of a sobering moment for me, but. Uh, it's stuck in my memory, and I think it was in a pretty important moment for me, you know, it's taken a lot of years, I still do that, but maybe not with the pointed edge that uh, I tended to do it early on. So that brings us to 830 folks uh, so much to think about, in all of these. Uh, And so take your time with it. Go back over some of the things that we looked at and hold hold them in mind. So much that is beautiful and challenging. Okay. So when we close, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Have a wonderful night.